Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. Hello everyone, my name is Flex. I am a TV presenter, a professional opinion haver, and this is my Lady Startup story. Lady Startup is a movement that helps women launch and grow their own businesses, big or small, well-established or brand new. If it was founded or co-founded by a woman, it's a Lady Startup. And this is Lady Startup Stories, a podcast where female entrepreneurs answer nosy questions from me, Mia Friedman, about the fist-pumping moments when you're winning and the deep troughs of pain when things go wrong. How do you go from being a person to being a brand? And how do you start making money not just from what you do, but from who you are? Flex Mammy is a slashy, a DJ, TV presenter, podcast host, author, and the owner of Flex Factory, which makes products. She's part of a new generation of businesswomen who have built their brand and business on Instagram. She has over 93,000 followers on Instagram and she interacts with them daily, posting insights into her life and asking them to think critically about their own. And she makes money in lots of different ways, both by endorsing other people's products and selling her own. Flex's real name is Lily. She's 26 years old. And in this interview, you are going to learn a ton about personal branding, how you create value with content, how you decide what product will sell best to your audience, and how you turn followers into customers. Flex, my love. I want to ask about the business of being a brand as a lady startup. Wait, like, it's not like you wake up one morning and you're a brand. How does it happen? I definitely think there are steps in place uh, that you take to be perceived as a brand, and I did that. And I knew of these steps from working in PR. So it's setting yourself up. It's, you know, putting context behind everything that you do. It's separating yourself. It's applying a title. Like, I'm not a person who takes photos. I'm a photographer. This is my portfolio. This is what I did on the weekend. I had a client, so on and so forth. So Would you give me an example? So what I did earlier on was I became a DJ. How old were you? 20. And I'm yep. 26 now. And why did you want to become a DJ? I was working in PR and social and digital comms. And I mean, I think I was pretty naive to how good I was going to be at it because I was one of those gifted and talented students who just assumed that I was naturally inclined to be good at everything. <laughs> and then I went into the office as a junior and wasn't that great. It was just taking a toll on my self-worth because I had tied the two so intrinsically. And I thought maybe it's not the job. Maybe it's because the job is my only thing. It's my only priority. It's all I do. So if I get a hobby, then I will like my job more. So I was 20. So I was going out a lot, but I wasn't drinking because I'm not, it's not my thing, but I wanted to be out. And I was like, I don't want to spend money to be here. Why can't I just like be a door girl? Because, you know, they get into the party, they know how to have fun. They've got power. They've got power. It's like, it was perfect. Um, And through there, I met these promoters who obviously were running a club night and they just didn't have, their business acumen was all over the place. They were paying for DJs when there was no one in the club. And I mentioned that, you know, you could work on this and run it as a business. And they were like, "Mm, not really interested. What would you change? And I said, first, you need to have DJs that you're not paying for. Get your friends to come on. Why don't you DJ? It's just not necessarily a smart business move. And they're like, oh, not really interested. 
And I was like, well, someone like me, I need to be at this club from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. My job doesn't <laughs> I actually, need to. I need to. <laughs> My job doesn't actually start till midnight because we don't charge anyone from 9 p.m. till midnight. So I'm just standing out there chatting to everyone for hours. So if I can come up and DJ, then we kill two birds. And they're like, you can't DJ. I was like, yeah, I'm a, can't be that hard. So from that point, when I knew that I was going to start DJing, I downloaded the software, I got the headphones, I changed all of my bios. I said that I was a DJ. I constantly made reference to what I was doing, the music I was mixing, where I wanted to go, who I wanted to work with. I kept pitching myself because I, I mean, I had this adolescent hubris that I could do it. So I was like, you know what, in a few weeks, I'm going to be DJing here. You should come. Do you know anyone who books for that? It was good that my overconfidence matched my ability you know, that helped. Mm. Um, so you didn't suck at DJ. I didn't. Oh, I wasn't very good, but I could, once I picked up the um, the muscle memory and the skills, it was quite simple. And people weren't hiring DJs based on music. They were hiring them based on what they looked like. So for the longest time, I was just brand building and building sort of a. So um, like what you wore to the club. What I wore, what I said I played, how I presented myself, what clubs that I hung out at, how I promoted myself virtually, all of these things took precedence over the music I was actually playing for that hour, you know, three times a week. So it's the opposite of imposter syndrome. Is it more like fake it till you make it? I mean, there's no faking though. You don't strike me as someone with imposter syndrome. No, I'm quite certain that I have the ability to do things. Anything? Um, I can't really cook well and I don't know some things, but for the things that uh, are within my skill set, I always had confidence because people Mm. had given me conviction that it's easy. You can do it. So I think what I would do that's differently to other people is that I learn the industry first and then I see what skills I have that will complement the industry as opposed to doing what I like. Ah, so instead of trying to make a flex-shaped hole in the industry, you see what the industry needs and then you adapt. Make flex fit. So, yes, that's how I became a DJ. Well, that's how I started building the brand. And when you work for yourself, how does it work? Like as a contractor, as a freelancer, Mm. is it about what you say no to as much as what you say yes to? To a point. I mean, when I was transitioning from full-time work to DJ work, I don't think I loved DJing, but I loved having – a lust for life. Playing music is quite secondary to people perceiving you to have skills that you don't have or inviting you into spaces that you couldn't go before because suddenly you have a profile. Like what are some of those? Well, it's like suddenly from DJing, I was doing radio and then I became an MTV presenter. And the only reason why I was able to do that job is because they were looking for a news presenter who had music uh, specialties. Did I have presenting experience? No. Did I lie about it? A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I knew. I mean, I wouldn't have been considered for that role if I didn't have a profile from being a DJ. Mm. So in terms of, yeah, freelancing and contracting, I think a big part of it is what you say no to. But I think a bigger conversation is how you how you communicate your value in the industry because there's so many of us. And there's, that's brand. It's branding. There are so many DJs, so many artists, so many graphic designers, so many entrepreneurs, mm. but what separates one from the other is often how their brand is perceived. Mm. And branding is such a weird, elusive term because it's not tangible. How do you see it in terms of you and your brand and your work? For me personally, I think that How I'm perceived is very much out of my control. I mean, what people see when they go on my Instagram, my website, I can only do so much to shift their perception of that. But what I want to make sure is of the things that they could see, they are favorable and they tell a 
not even a cohesive story, but one that pushes them closer to conversion. So I know that people around my age group, which is 26, they are often talking about adulting, talking about their values, how they create a value system for themselves. They're talking about the way they look, the way they feel, where they go, what they aspire to be. And these are all conversations that I'm having quite naturally. And it's easy because I'm selling a lifestyle. Like when you are selling yourself, the conversation is how much do you want to share with people? How much of yourself do you want to sell? Mm. And it's like it's a tricky territory because sometimes you're like, I don't want to talk about my relationship. <laughs> like, Instagram's your office. Yes. How do you treat it like an office? And when did you realise that it was your office? <laughs> it was more of a mental shift um, than a content shift. There was definitely a time where I was doing the classic influencer thing, which is looking pretty, taking photos. But then that had an effect on how I was perceived by my audience and brands. They couldn't really see past the 2D figure. What kind of things did you post in those earlier days? Oh, photos of outfits. Like, look at me in this outfit. Look at me in this outfit. Hey, I got this bag. Isn't it cute? Hey, look at this lipstick. It's fine. And then you kind of realize that you're just a clothes hanger to your audience, which is fine if that's what you want to do. But I knew that influencing for me is kind of a means to an end because I always knew that I wanted to be in a position where I could work for myself and start a business, blah, 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 blah. But influencing gave me such a head start. I found the hardest thing with any of my business ideas as a young person was not having an audience to speak to. And suddenly you've got an audience right here who wants to support you in any way that they actually can. And so, you know, overnight you're like, oh, I've got 80,000 people mm. who I can just speak to. And even if 1% of them want to buy what I'm selling or invest in my idea, that's a lot of people. And so when I made the transition to humanizing or personifying myself, I was like, what does this look like on an app? Like, how much do I need to share for people to get it? And it's minor stuff. It's actually like removing the smoke and mirrors and just being like, oh, hey, like, I don't even think you know my real name. Sorry. Yeah. It's Lillian. <laughs> and then from there, I don't even think you know what I like to eat or where I go, what I do. How much thought do you have to put into curating what you put up? Very little. I honestly think that... People like to overcomplicate the job because you're so you're defensive of people telling you that it's not important. So you're like, no, I do heaps of stuff. I have to plan, you know, I have to set up the lighting. Um, and it, it doesn't matter because nobody's liking based on how much effort you put into a post, it's how much they resonate with it. Mm. And you'll notice people can resonate with a photo of you with no makeup talking about, you know, endo, probably more than they'll resonate with you in a full face, beautiful lighting, talking about your amazing weekend at the gala. It's all contextual. It doesn't require that much uh, thought, but I think what becomes true years when you start asking yourself, why am I posting? If I'm going to look at my audience as almost like a sales tool in some way, then I want to make sure that I'm providing value. So when it comes time for me to extract value, then it feels fair because we've, you've seen it, you know, influencers just like post them, don't engage with their audience, post their faces, don't engage with their audience. And then like, Hey, I've got a brand and nobody wants to buy anything because mm -hmm. up until that point, you've only been extracting value through likes and comments and compliments. But what have you been giving back? So I think the hardest thing for me is like, okay, what can I give my audience? It's not extracting too much from me. That's such a brilliant way to explain it because, you know, when I worked in magazines, we would always have a ratio of how many editorial pages we would have to how many advertising pages. Mm. And I look at some influencers on personal brands and it is just campaign after campaign mm -hmm. after campaign after branded after SponCon after SponCon. And I always feel that that's just crazy because, as you say, you're not you're not adding value. You're not adding value. 
it's the least I could do. I mean, I think I'm in a different position because I'm utilizing influencership as a means to not even an end, but a destination. What is that destination? So a destination is full entrepreneurship and to get to a point where I can build and make money and I have to commodify myself because it gets tricky when you're like, oh, I've got to like share more of myself. I've got to give you my insight, my opinion, your advice, all these things that feel so secondary to just creating a product, doing the branding and marketing and letting it live, being a little bit more not even behind the scenes, but not being so tied to individuals and their opinions and having to placate and all these things. It's just, it's a job in itself. It's three jobs in itself and it's not really my priority. Can you explain a little bit about what that's like for someone who might not understand what it looks like on the ground? Absolutely. So I guess with my page in particular, the whole foundation of it is educating, adding value, entertaining and teaching, which is fine. So somebody might say to me, hey, you know, you made a podcast on narcissism versus gaslighting. I found it really interesting, but I have follow-up questions. Fine. I can answer one follow-up question. No, it's 80 people asking me that in an hour. And then it's, they're all expecting an answer. They're all like, wait, you responded to me last time. Why don't you respond this time? So it's constantly finding this line between, you know, when you create an environment for two-way conversation, it doesn't stop when you feel like you don't want to speak anymore. Yes, that's It's a true. constant conversation. And because I've already created a habit of engaging, it's like I'm regressing when I don't. And that becomes a topic of, oh, you used to be more engaged. What's happened? It's exhausting having to explain yourself. It's all, it's too much. How are you managing it? Day by day. I mean, there are some days I'm like, you know what? Nobody's going to get upset if I don't take the time out to say this lipstick shade is. It's not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. But if it's educational and it's necessary for context, like if an audience member asks me, I don't understand why um, everybody's talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm like, okay, there's a moment for education. What I'll do is I'll put it on the story. And so anyone who wants to engage with it can. And I'm not having to kind of have this one-on-one. 80,000 times. You know? (laughs) And so what I try and find the balance between is saying that, like, I'm here to provide information, but I'm not a teacher. I don't have to be here making sure that you know the A curves that way and And one plus one is two. It's not it. I'm going to provide as much context as you can. And the same way I learned, which is using Google, you should do the same thing. And I also understand my duty of care and the legal ramifications of giving bad advice or bad information. People always wonder why I don't give advice anymore. I'm like, you don't, huh? (laughs) No, I'm not giving you advice. Mm. I don't need to. It's dangerous. And the stakes are so low for you asking, but they're so high for me giving and not having all the context. It's things that you have to do because my audience isn't necessarily regarding me as a brand. I'm just a person on the internet with a following, you know, Mm. whereas I'm like, oh, I'm a brand, but then I'm a business. I'm a person. But all these roles that need to be done and done well for the, the train to keep moving. Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move, and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. How did you develop the idea of reflex cards? 
two-pronged. The first, and can you explain what they are? Yes. So Reflex are, uh, is my range of conversation cards uh, that encourage self-development and critical thinking. And the reason why I made them is two-pronged. First is because in my podcast, Bobo and Flex, we have a lot of um, what people would call like smart conversations, right? And so people would ask us, you know, how can we replicate these conversations in our own spaces? How do we think more critically or deeply about what we feel and why we feel it. What questions should we ask ourselves and others? And I was like, okay, I would DM you questions. Here, here are 10. Give that a go. Here are 10. Give that a go. And then when the 10 are used up, hey, Flex, could I get some more questions? I'd be like, oh, no, like I don't, I don't have, I don't have any more. Yeah, but last time you just like, can you just think of some? Like, you know, I've got a date in a couple of hours. And so when that was happening, I thought, okay, perhaps I could just put some questions in a PDF. But I was in that stage where I'm like, hey, my following is building and I know what my destination is and it's not having these interactions. So why can't I test this theory of if I provide value? and ask people to invest in the value I'm providing, what would that look like? And it went quite well because suddenly we all know consumer psychology, you know, everyone's like, well, you've made it now. And if these are questions you pay for, then they must be of better value than ones you'd give us for free, right? Yeah. And they are because I sat there, I thought about it, I conceptualized it. It's all amazing. But it was definitely, yeah, out of a need for people to stop coming to me for mm-hmm. questions and answers, but also trialing what it'd be like to start a business that was product-based and not necessarily like me selling myself even though my what did you learn like, from it and what would you do differently what I learned from it number one is that people will buy anything if you're creating a solution to a problem you know that's very simply put and at the time I wasn't looking at this like oh the problem is people don't know how to have deep conversations here's a solution but I knew I was providing value and I think most businesses just create what they like and hope that people were going to like it in return and they do sometimes but often they don't another thing is start as you intend to finish I know a lot of people want to cut corners and be like I don't really have like I don't really buy the domain Mm. I'll just have the dot big cartel you know or like (laughs) the dot square space (laughs) or you know like I don't really get packaging I'll just like chuck it in an Oz post bag and like see how we go we'll see if people like it but all of these things now influence whether people even buy from you again or at all and the third thing was actually be a lot more cognizant of what you're charging for the value that you're giving how do you decide in the initial stages I used to measure myself against corporations oh asos is charging you know 30 bucks for a board game therefore i should charge 30 bucks for a board game it's like well no asos is buying you know a hundred thousand units so their cost per board game is very small and you're buying 200 500 so yours is much higher so thinking realistically like you know how special is this can people get this anywhere else like is it really that special what would i actually pay for it and how important is sales to me in this stage because Earlier when I was building a brand, I priced the cards at so low I wasn't making any money. because how, I was like, how much did you price them at first? Initially, they were $10 because oh I was like, God. only because it wasn't meant to be a business initially. I was like, I want to But that also see- would make me think that they'd be shit. Exactly. Right? So that's the danger of pricing too low. Exactly. So I was like, $10, it doesn't matter. Like I make no money, but I'm just putting it out into the world. I'm yeah. trying to shift my audience's um, perception of me. So it's like, oh, you're an influencer, but you now make product. So what does that make you in our eyes? right? But what I didn't realize is that pricing it at $10 doesn't make it seem aspirational, doesn't make it seem important or interesting. And like, if you look at the quality of the cards, yeah, 
like I was losing money pricing yeah. it at that point, but I wasn't thinking critically about the bigger picture. It's tricky to up your price after you've already set it so low. And so you have to kind of create magic around the experience to make it worthwhile. So suddenly like, <laughs> like I'll come to your house. And yes. <laughs> so suddenly like the box has to be not craft brown. It needs to be in color. And suddenly you need to put like something in the box. So it looks like you're adding value. Like a lolly or a Tim like Tam. Like a lolly, a Tim Tam, But a then sticker. it's a lot more expensive to produce. Exactly working backwards is never easy so starting as you intend to finish and saying I'm going to price it at 30 bucks and if this is a barrier to entry I'm going to spend more time figuring out what would make this seem like Mm. something worth spending your money on versus trying to like jump hoops a lot of women struggle with being in the public eye even as as an owner of a business in terms of feedback Mm. do you have a way of sorting the feedback that you take on board and not taking on feedback that's destructive I think it starts with self-auditing. I mean, a lot of people are so close to their idea and they start to like nurture it and cuddle it and love it and wrap it up in wool. And then you forget that like you're biased and your bias is so high that you need to step back and just audit. If you use even like 10% of critical thinking, you can pick apart what you do. Like like the website isn't that good and like packaging isn't that great. And like, oh, I know I should have changed that copy, but it's printed now. And so with that in mind, put it all down. And when you can afford to make those changes, mm. when you run out of packaging, change them before you reach out for constructive criticism, because you know, deep down. Did you the- have to invest a lot of money in making these? No. I think when we did our first order, like 2000 maybe, wow. and then it probably cost us like 12, 13,000 to like get it made. But because I how do I explain it? I knew there was an interest in it. So it wasn't as I was spending 12000 to not make any money. I was spending 12000 to make, you know, two times, three times that. So it Unless felt- no one bought them. Absolutely. So but it was a risk. It was it was a risk, but it to me it was a moderate risk because 12000 to know if your idea is or isn't going to work mm. is fine by me. And you had income coming in from other places. Exactly. So you knew you could make that back if it went tits up. And I think what I needed to do was kind of just take a leap and do it as it needed to be done. So like get the right packaging, get the right printer, get the How right- How did you find all those contacts? Let's start with a designer. Designer, like I'm surrounded by creative people because of the industry. So I went to a friend of mine who I knew could design because I didn't have a vision for what it looked like. I knew that I had my own creative sensibilities, but just thought, you know, if I was giving you this idea, make it look cute based on how you perceive me. We went with it. We've changed it a thousand times since then, but to start, it was good enough. And then to find a printer, I typed in digital printing, Sydney, and emailed the first 10 people and just started price matching and being like, what are you actually offering? The trickiest thing with the card game is that the cards needed to be collated and I wasn't going to do that. So it's like if someone could print the cards, cut the cards, put them in cello glaze, collate them, print the box, make the box, send it to me. That is what I'm looking for. I don't want someone to just print the box. So that was the hardest conversation to have. And then to find- And you did that with all the digital printers that you were speaking Absolutely, to. Absolutely. Because for me, it was tricky to be like, we're going to go here to fold them. We're going to Yeah, because I wouldn't have even them. known to ask those questions mm-hmm. and that there were those steps involved. But because we had done it ourselves initially, we, me being me and a friend, we were like, gosh, like we got a good deal on printing, but us sitting here and like putting like 50 cards in the right order and then packaging, <laughs> making the box, sealing it. It was insane. Yeah. So with that in mind, we're like, okay, we've got to think more strategically. We've got to incorporate it. that into the process. Absolutely. And suddenly it's worthwhile. What products are coming up? Oh, a ton of stuff. We're doing rugs. I just sent heaps of rug samples off. It's going to be so cool. We're doing homewares, art, little cute coasters, more games, of course. Like the card games are my pride 
and joy. How did you decide those categories? Oh, by making stuff I like. Yeah. <laughs> Initially, I said that, you know, when you don't have an audience, making stuff that you like and that you would buy can be a deterrent because you aren't your audience. But I'm at the point where I am my audience. And so I already have a uh, 100,000 people who want what I want. I want your And rugs. who like what I like. I like your rug. Yeah. <laughs> so it's super beneficial. In the 90s, it used to be all about big brands like Target and Kmart approaching the influences of those times like Michelle Bridges and mm. Deborah Hutton and um, Danny Minogue and sort of creating these big lifestyle ranges, mm. as they were called, around them. Is that still a dream or has it shifted and now you want to own it? Oh, I definitely want to own it. But I think for me there's a separation between Flex the brand and then Flex Factory that houses Reflex. They're two different conversations. I think what I've known from working in influencer territory is that the deal is never that good. <laughs> for what you're giving up and what they're extracting, it's never that fair. And so if I was to give up an idea, it would only be if I didn't have the supply chain or the resources or the capital to do it myself. And, you know, with a little like smart marketing, you can make money. You know, it might not be the way you want to make it or intend to, but you can make money. All right, five quick questions. Love it. What app or software is the most useful to you in running any aspect of your business? Clavio. It's an automated... Um, with a C? With a K. Uh-huh. K-L-A-V-I-Y-O. Oh, I never would have spelled it that way, yeah. <laughs> it's an automated software that kind of automates all your customer interactions to build, retain, and maintain loyalty. So that's as simple as- For an e-commerce business. For an e-commerce business, yeah. But you could do it for your retail business, your like bricks and mortar. This is a good way to explain it. So let's say um, my customers bought something from the website and it'll automatically send them a thank you and ask them for feedback. Let's say someone's gone to a product page and they didn't buy what was on the page. It'll email them and ask them for feedback, give them a free shipping code. Let's say they put something in their cart, put their car details in. It'll go through, tell you the steps of every page they went on before they got to that point. It'll give you details of how long they stayed there and you can draw conclusions on why they did or didn't buy. And just having that sort of like automated conversation happening generates like 20% of our sales. All right, morning routine. Uh, Do the stuff I have to, not the stuff that I want to. So it doesn't sound like fun. I know. What time do you get up? Between like nine and midday, to be honest. But I go to bed between three and 5 a.m. Oh, my goodness. It It can't happen forever. It can't. (laughs) Uh, So you get up then. What do you do when you get up? Do what I have to, not what I want to. So I check the account. I double check our shipping and fulfiller and be like, hey, like what orders have gone through? What haven't? I check customer service emails. Just all that stuff that's like boring. Do you do that from bed or do you like go into a different part of your house? Yeah. Being a freelance, I haven't really maintained any like positive (laughs) ways of working. I'm like, we'll do it from bed. Conference call from bed, pajamas on, like t-shirt on, pants off. Um, But yeah, things like that, just like having those conversations, checking DMs, answering the same conversation again, things like that. What's the biggest mistake you've made with your brand and what did you learn from it? Under communicating. Is that a word? Yeah. Under communicating. As I mentioned before, I was walking to a lot of these environments trusting the professionals and so really being loose in the way I was communicating because I thought they would like fill in the gaps with the best. If I said that I needed cards printed on good card stock, I would assume they would give me good card stock. So not being specific enough in what you wanted. Yeah, and just leaving a lot of room for Mm. error and gaps because I just thought it was like a loose process. How hard could it be to get someone to make a sticker as you wanted? Really hard apparently. So I think I was under communicating, leaving a lot of room for error and then having to fix Do yourself a favor. (laughs) Brief well. Brief well. What's the part of your business you hate the most? Social media. 
I would say Instagram specifically, there's such a specific way that you need to show audiences stuff. It needs to be shot in a certain way, grouped in a certain way, edited a certain way. It needs to be frequent. They want content all the time. I often think that social media is just like a cesspool of just stuff. And a lot of it doesn't need to be there. But if you don't post, you're penalized and your stuff isn't shown. So it's like you're feeding this beast tirelessly, not for no reason, but in terms of like the input versus the output that you receive in that activity, social media is like very low. Like you put it, you break your back and then you don't get what you expected from it. Whereas I know if I break my back in digital ads, there's a return there. Break my back in product development, there's a return there. Social media, it just feels like, yeah, I mean, I saw it, didn't want to like it, didn't really feel like it. What part of your business do you love the most? Product development. So much fun. Just like thinking of an idea and then getting it actually made, insane. Because that process seems um, so mysterious for someone who doesn't make products. You know, like, where do you go to get a custom plate made? How do you get custom fitted sheets made? Like, where do you go? Who makes rugs? Who makes rugs? Exactly. So when you are here during that process and you're getting a sample, you're like, wow, I made that and it's cool and I can use it. That to me is so much fun. Hey, thank you. Amazing. You're a superstar. Thank you so much. This is fun. It's takeaway time. At the end of every episode, I'm going to tell you my biggest aha moment, the biggest nugget I took from the conversation that any of us can hold on to and use in our own businesses, either now or in the future. And with Flex, it's this. Social media is marketing, even when the brand is you. And you really have to think about it that way. One of the core values at Mamma Mia is always walk in her shoes. And if you do the Lady Startup Activation Plan with me, you'll hear me say it a lot and talk about it in depth. What it means though, quite simply, is that you should always think about everything you do in a business from the point of view of your audience, not the point of view of yourself. And you should also do that with everything that you post on social for your business. Ask yourself, what value am I giving to my audience with this post? And with influencers, you might have noticed that there are some who just post sponsored stuff or stuff where they're hard selling. Now, sponsored posts are great. Making money is great. Don't get me wrong. But when you're posting sponsored content, you're basically asking your audience to buy something that you've been paid to endorse, which again is totally fine. But you have to think about the context of your feed as a whole and what else are you giving your audience? What do they actually want you to give them? Flex talks a lot about value. That's the most interesting part, I think, of the interview for me. That's how she sees her content as a very straightforward transaction. She gives value to her audience and occasionally she asks them to pay her money for things or support the products that she's endorsing for other people. She provides her audience with what they want. And in her case, it's a look into her life and her style and also her opinions, which she does on her podcast and also on her Insta. And she gives her audience enough of it, consistently enough, so that when she asks them for something to support one of her sponsors or maybe buy a product that she's made to sell them, they feel like the exchange is fair and they're happy to open their wallets. Give and take. So work out what it is that you have to give. If you're a business, it's often easier because quite simply what I want from the businesses I follow who sell things is their products. I want to see what you have to sell. So show me. 
I remember having a stern word with one lady startup fashion boutique who hardly ever posted and it drove me crazy because I never had time to go into the store. And so I'd go onto social to look for what she had in store and there was barely anything there. And one day when I went into the store, I asked her and she said, oh, I'm just really worried about bothering my followers and I'm really worried about, you know, being a pest and spamming them. And I said, that is just ridiculous. If I'm following you, I want to see what you've got. That's why I'm following you. Here is something I recommend if you're nervous about this, and I understand a lot of lady startups are. Find a friend who loves you and supports what you do, but is also going to be honest with you and occasionally check in with them to see how they feel about your social content. Are you posting too much? Not enough? Is it feeling too hard sell? Are you being maybe too unclear about what you've got to sell and how you're selling it? Listen to them and adjust your content accordingly. And follow Flex. She is pretty damn impressive. Now, Flex didn't start out knowing exactly what her product would be. In fact, for a long time, she was her product and her brand, and she didn't know what the business model was going to be for what she was doing. What she knew for sure was that she was meant for something different and that she wanted to create a different kind of life. And along her journey, it became clear that she wanted to be an entrepreneur. For Flex, her product evolved out of a need, some simple requests from her community, thoughtful conversation starters, and that's where the Reflex cards came from. If you're feeling similar to Flex and you feel that itch, that deep sense that you want something different from your life, even if you don't know exactly what it is yet, then you're in the right place. I have worked with thousands of women who feel exactly that way. And I know it's really overwhelming when you know in your heart that you want to start a business, but you're not sure what to sell or how to even get started. What if I told you that you can get started and you don't even need to have your idea yet? You could just start out as a personal brand if you wanted to. At the end of July, we are opening the doors to my flagship program, the Lady Startup Activation Plan. It's an online course that you can do at your own pace, in your own time, where I will walk you through the six simple steps from idea to launching your business in just six weeks. Head to ladystartup.com or follow the link in the show notes to learn more and hopefully I'll see you on the inside.